It is Monday, and you know what that means. It's another episode of Big Stick Energy, the undomesticated outdoor podcast, coming at you live on the Out of Collective podcast platform. My name is Tori Anderson. You can find me at Tori A. Alina on Instagram, and I'm here with my co-host, Renee McCurdy. You can find her at Renee McCurds on Instagram. We are two of the five co-founders of the Tang brand, um, and yeah, super freaking stoked to be back for another episode. This episode is unique because it was such a killer conversation that we had to break it into two parts. So today we are doing part one and then next week we're going to be doing part two. And this week we are talking about the concept of mountain culture. Mountain culture. Have you ever actually thought about what that means and how it's constantly kind of like pushed down our throats by different brands and marketing and um it's a really odd concept that kind of shapes all of our lives, the way that we consume things, the way that we interact with each other. But where did it start? Who started it? And what is it supposed to shape? Those are really important conversations to have, especially when looking at decolonizing the outdoors, because it is a very colonized space. The way that we relate to our environment is exceptionally colonized. And that is not exclusive to just society as a whole, but really like amplified in the outdoor space. And so today, as we dive into this conversation, we are super stoked to have Nahani McKay coming on. Um, she is a Métis Cree artist and a photographer based in Treaty 7 Terry, or sorry, Treaty 7 Territory in Alberta. Had a bit too much coffee and stumbling a little bit. Um, she was born and raised in Banff and has a really unique perspective on mountain culture, being a uh, part of the indigenous community and growing up in such like a colonized space in the mountains and the outdoors. Um, her art is absolutely amazing. She's a huge activist and she is starting some really important conversations and really leading the way that we could consider growing and developing as a community and how we could just simply do better. Um, so yeah, this episode is absolutely killer. Part one and part two together just shape such an important narrative. And I would honestly love to bring her back on to do a deeper dive into this stuff. Um, make sure you go check out her artwork as well. Like head to our website. You can follow her on Instagram. Overall, like one of my favorite human beings and she's just a certified freaking gem. But yeah, this week's episode, part one. Next week, part two. And if you feel so inclined after listening to this episode, because I know you're all going to love it, um, we would love to hear your feedback on whatever platform you were listening to. So Spotify, iTunes, directly from the website. If you feel like leaving us a review, that would be absolutely amazing. Um, it just kind of helps us use those algorithms to push this podcast up to kind of help the out of collective podcast platform and just keep this train running. Um, before we get into the episode, we're just going to run through some quick ads and then we'll get into the deets. There are two things I always keep in my camping kit and usually in my car. One of them is my rumple towel because you never know when you're going to pass by an extremely tempting lake after you've gotten hella sweaty mountain biking and my rumple blanket because so often I have misjudged how warm it's actually going to be <laughs> and I really want to have that extra layer. It's also great if you like see a sunset spot and you want to pull it over. You just have that accessibility and everybody's stoked when you bring out a sick warm insulated blanket on an adventure. Um, most importantly, I am super excited to be partnering with Rumpel because there aren't a lot of other options on the market that are dedicated to sustainability when it comes to creating uh, great kind of insulated blankets. So Rumpel has recycled over 5 million plastic water bottles a year to offset their carbon footprint. And they're also creating super durable, weatherproof and cozy blankets that are made out of technical materials used in premium outdoor gear and activewear. Um, right now, sick opportunity. They're currently running a sale for 25% off on their website uh, until the 30th of May. So if you're listening to this now, definitely jump on that. You can head to www.rumpl.com to receive that 25% off and browse what sick products they have in stock. And if you choose to buy something, you can use the code out of bounds, O U T O F B O U N D S B 
BB, out of bounds BB, to get a free beer blanket with your purchase. So double up on that stuff. Check them out. Thanks for listening, my guys. Okay, so one of my biggest goals this season is to get comfortable planning my route for a backcountry trip. I had a friend point out recently that I am very knowledgeable and I help make navigation decisions and snow safety decisions when we're actually out in the backcountry. But when it comes to that pre-planning aspect, opening up a map, choosing where we're going to go, I usually let other people kind of take the reins. And I realized that that is a huge safety flaw in my knowledge and experience. And it's something that I want to work on. So I'm super pumped that our uh, podcast sponsor on X is helping me realize those bad bitch dreams. And I think their app is freaking dope and an awesome tool to help chicks feel and other people feel everybody feel more confident and independent uh, when it comes to making those decisions and participating group safety. It's, it's basically a guidebook in your pocket that's intuitive and super easy to use because we all hate an app that doesn't work since we're addicted to convenience. Um, The premium subscription gives you access to offline GPS that allows you to save maps and locate yourself in the terrain you're in to make sure you're en route, which is awesome because I am so geographically challenged. Um, There's over 10,000 guide quality routes with descriptions and photos. You can slope shade, group plan, place waypoints, and view the landscape in 3D topo satellite, hybrid base maps. You also have access to other information like forecasts, land boundaries, recreation points, historic avalanche data. It's freaking bananas, all the stuff you get in there. But yeah, the the premium subscription is only $29 a year, which is so freaking cheap. And with the discount code that we have today, you get 20% off of that. So if you're scared of commitment like me, you can sign into a seven-day free trial. So you can definitely give it a go and make your mind up later. It's super freaking easy peasy. And yeah, these guys are just making access to information a lot more uh reachable, like reducing barriers and making sure it's easy for everybody to kind of use these tools. But yeah, if you're into it, you can head to their website, www.onxmaps.com. And you can use our discount code out of bounds for 20% off the premium subscription. And like I said, they've got that seven day free tile so you can run away from commitment. Tally ho, no, before you go, my dude, safety looks good on you. Do you want to just tell everybody like who you are quickly, the like spark notes? <clears throat> I mean, we just said we have to do a multi-series part. So as much as you can pack in in a quick introduction, because yeah, you're a certified weapon and a great human being. Aw, oh, that's so kind. Um, Tanse Avoa Stitch, hello. My name's Nahani. Um, I'm a Métis artist here on Treaty 7, home of Blackfoot, Stone and Dakota, Satina Nations, Métis Region 3. Um, I'm an artist. I'm a photographer and I'm dipping my toes into the ski industry a little bit. Dang, that was spark notes for sure. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> pew, pew. So good. Yeah. Um, man, I feel like, okay, Renee, jump in here. You're muted. Help me with questions. I feel like we just have to to start oh my gosh um yeah I don't don't even know where to start here there's just a lot of things you know what a lot of things I see as a highlight jumping into like the introduction it's like growing up in Banff Mm. Banff is colonialized I actually googled where Banff came from the other day like the name and it's from like another town like another like colonized town and they were like yeah Scotland yeah Scotland yes (laughs) really yeah what um but what what do you want to know (laughs) I mean we all know that like I think it's so funny because people who have privilege in the in the outdoors and like in the ski industry the outdoor industry like I was at um, I was at a, a work event the other day, and I was talking to an athlete about diversity in the outdoors. And we were 
we were talking about like unpacking it and making it more inclusive and changing like the messaging, but making sure it's actionable and like, what's the brand doing to stand up for diversity? And I was like, how do you think about ski racing? Like, what's the image of it? And he was so cute. He was like, it's fast. It's intense. It's gripping. It's like, and I was like, oh, honey. I was like, no, no, no. Like, let's think about more like, like culture, like demographics. Like, yes. what do you see? And he was like, oh man, I don't even know. And I was like, it's elitist, it's white and colonized, masculinely dominated, it is heteronormative, it is all these things. And he was like, holy shit, you're right. And it was just so funny to see this light bulb go off in his head and to like bring him full circle, but existing in that space as a person who has privilege, it's like he's never considered it before. And then we had this awesome conversation where he was like, holy fuck, it was just like this light bulb went off. And people who grow up as that part of like the you know, mountain culture or whatever, they don't understand. They don't see it. So like, let's unpack that shit from the other side. Yeah, sure. So as someone who grew up in Banff, um, a white privileged town, I am white and privileged. I can't deny that. I'm not trying to deny it, but I just want to tell you that I understand. I am. I grew up in Banff. Not a lot of people get to do that. Both my parents grew up in Banff. Um, and my grandfather owned a camera shop on Banff Avenue called RK Camera. And that's kind of where my love of photography came up. But growing up, I didn't really know the difference. I don't think anyone really knows the difference when they're young, like of like, like where you live, like people can say your whole life, you're like, oh, you're so lucky to grow up here. And it's just like, okay, <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I think I had this like romanticized idea of like growing up somewhere else, somewhere that wasn't like where I am right now. Um, and you guys grew up in Cochrane, right? Like so close. And, um, and I just grew up skiing. Like I just didn't like, I, that's just what you did. Like Norquay was my home hill still, still is my home hill. Like I bypass there every season. And yeah, I think growing up with my parents, um, my dad's a mountain guide. He's a full ACMG guide. He's one of the a uh, few indigenous full ACMG guides, him and Barry Blanchard. We actually, uh, my dad and I went ski touring like last month. We ran into Barry. It was just like old man central. It was so funny. <laughs> just being like, what are you doing this winter? Are you climbing this mountain? I'm like, oh my God, I need to leave. And um, yeah. And just like growing up indigenous, I always knew I was indigenous. Like my dad always like kept that, um, kept that side of us and always like taught us like, um, our nation and our history and uh but I didn't really know what it meant until um I played hockey in Banff and then uh my friend Linnell from Morley was like hey do you want to play native provincials and I was like yeah like what do you have to do and she's like well you said you're native right and I was like yeah and she's like well do you have a status card I'm like what's a status card and then she explained it to me I'm like that sounds complicated but like I'm down to play hockey with you guys so I had to go to Calgary to the Métis Nation office, um, prove my identity, prove my family history back to the 1800s to get my status card. And I had to get, I had to give my status card to the people who are hosting this hockey tournament. And um, then I got to play hockey with Morley, which is awesome. Me and my friend Kaylee and my friend Jessica, uh, we all, we all got our cards from Banff and like played hockey. And um that was like my first introduction into like like my self-discovery because I grew up outside of um outside of community the Métis community and it was it was interesting to me because I was thinking I'm like does other ethnicities need to do this to prove who they are by the government to have an application they can't just like say who they are and um I'm white presenting so of course like it was kind of, uh, I felt self-conscious um, going there, but I had a really good relationship with my hockey team and it just was, and I'm glad that like my first introduction into my Métis roots was through team and friendship and sport. That's really interesting. And also such a good point that you bring up of having to prove your own ethnicity to get a card that says that you are that ethnicity and you're just like but like my dad like how is this so hard to figure out like I am what I am <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, it was it was really awkward for sure. And it, and I actually wrote a paper about that in university about like who what other culture needs to do this. I, I can't think of one. No, I can't think of one. <laughs> Maybe there is one. I don't know. Maybe someone listen to this and DM me and be like, this place. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. What? Sorry, I'm backtracking here. What did you go to university for? I went to Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver, and I went for photography. So I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in photography. Sick. Awesome. Yeah, I think... Um, everything that you, you just brought up, like it's such a, a different experience than I think anybody who is an immigrant to Canada would experience and who is part of, you know, being a white, yeah, colonial, like all of us. Like I, I tracked my family's um, immigration here from Scotland in the 1920s for a class. And it was just like, show up. We were given free land, which is so fucked up. And <laughs> the the whole like experience of it and the concept of it and like growing up just like existing without having to prove who you are and you just you inherently belong and you're not othered and like um I took a class that was like gender and uh popular culture and we looked at uh colonialism and what has happened to indigenous women um throughout that period and uh the way that legislative like institutions and like government institutions, healthcare institutions have done this to indigenous people to have to prove that they are part of a community, but it's another aspect to keep them othered and to keep them, you know, marginalized. And it's mm -hmm. like, it made me so like viscerally angry. <laughs> like I couldn't like hide it the more that you learn about it. And it also showed me how much is missing from colonialized education as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right now at my hospital, we have, um, a bunch of education going on where they just drop in and they have someone from the indigenous team that comes and is just like whoever has a moment like i just want to educate you and help you understand a little bit more and even had like a situation on night shift where this older gentleman was of indigenous ancestry and just so confused because of his condition and like probably some dementia there as well but we're trying to do this procedure and he was just so scared and like we're sitting there and we're like, Oh my gosh, like what is the best way we can do this? Because we don't know his experiences. Like maybe he was in residential schools and here we are these like white folks trying to like, I don't want to say like force something on him because it was like really like just trying to make him better. Like we had to do this procedure, but we're like, what is the best way that we can do this for him so that it's not traumatic because there is such a potential for this person having experienced something really traumatic in their life at the hands of people who look like me. And it was actually like quite morally distressing for us because like we actually had this realization of like, okay, like, what might this person have experienced that they're reacting in this way? And then just like, I don't know. It was really, really hard, really hard. Yeah. But that's where the education comes in because 10 years ago, would someone have even considered, oh, this person might have been to a residential school or like Indian hospitals, they called them, or like they would just do experimental treatments on on folks and they'll get taken off the reserve for just like something like a broken ankle and never go back hmm. I didn't know about that yeah it's not super well known but I learned about it in nursing school because I had a really good instructor that her she had a, a adopted brother that was indigenous so their family just actually was like quite educated through this brother and him connecting to his culture that then she teaches all the nursing students a whole section on indigenous culture, has elders that come in and speak to us and we do like blanket exercise. It was quite good in that respect. Um, but you know, yeah, I years ago, you wouldn't have, I'm sure they didn't have any clue about any of this stuff. And then now it like actually does really affect my job and how I treat people and just consider like, okay, like this person, might have experienced this and that's why they're so scared right now 
Yeah. And I love that they're teaching that in the, the medical field. That's amazing. And I, uh, I don't know what it's like now, but like, I guess growing up, you guys can also talk about this, but like I was growing up in high school, we didn't get a lot of education. It depended on your teacher more than the curriculum of what we learned about indigenous culture. I only kind of remember that, um, we used the Buffalo for everything. And that's kind of all I can remember from social studies. Um, and now that you bring that up, yes, that's pretty much it. That's fucked. The full Buffalo. All of it. The whole Buffalo. The whole thing. (laughs) Even the sinews. That's the one thing they teach you. They're like, even like they use sinews for like string and shit. Oh my God. I'm sure sure they did, but like that's like what I remember learning. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, I'm, but um, my sister, my two, I have two half siblings and they're in high school and elementary school right now and um, they, they're doing projects about um, indigenous culture and the residential school system. And like, it's, it's better now. And I remember a friend telling me that she's in a class about like, how can we decolonize education? And it's like, education is a colonial structure. So to decolonize that, I don't know. It's, um, (laughs) it's a lot to be honest. Yeah, all these things is like biting off huge chunks. Like, you know, like when we're talking about activism, even in the ski industry, which I mean, ski industry in the grand scheme of things is not that big. Education Canada wide, that's pretty big, but you just have to be in the right place where you can impact it. But it is still so exhausting to be arguing for that all the time and having to educate the educators about your experiences yeah and it's it's hard too because like people like in this town like obviously being one of the few indigenous people in Banff it's like they come to me to ask questions but I'm I still grew up here like I I still grew up with immense privilege I'm still white present like I didn't come from a reserve like I don't know I can't help you like it it feels it's very tokenized how people treat me sometimes and um like, I don't want them to feel bad about it. I mean, they're trying to educate themselves, but um, yeah, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. Uh, I know we've kind of like touched previously in our conversations about tokenism a little bit and just how people come to you and ask you to be a part of projects just because you are that token person of indigenous heritage in an otherwise white community and they don't know who else to ask no and that's true um we could segue into (laughs) i think Um, i think this is an important segue because a lot of people like um you know like the the white savior complex or like the heterosexual cisgendered savior complex or like I don't feel like a lot of a lot a lot of people don't understand what it means to be an ally or how to be an effective ally and like you know elevating these groups voices but not like overpowering them or not like I feel like it's something that makes people really uncomfortable and people get uncomfortable with being uncomfortable which means they just avoid. <laughs> so it's like yeah, I think this would be an awesome segue to get into. It would probably help a lot. <laughs> Just, yeah, lots to unpack, always. Um, should I talk about that film? Yep, let's go. Yeah. All right, let's go. Um, we go. <laughs> so um also growing up in town there's like this glorified pedestal that people put early explorers in the rocky mountains on um and they're not they're not explorers they're colonizers they came here they climbed mountains they named mountains after them themselves and friends like their hometown in scotland <laughs> like it's so it's so odd. And um, I guess like when I 
canoed. I canoed um, Moline Lake last year with my partner, um, his brother, and my sister. And we had like a little family trip on Moline Lake, um, canoeing the whole lake to Cornette Creek. And of course, like everywhere I go, I try to be mindful of like the place I am. Um, obviously, like I like to lay tobacco sometimes and like smudge. And um, my sister also does that as well. So it was like a very wholesome, like wonderful experience to do this with my family and my chosen family as well. And when I went to Moline Lake, I wanted to know more about it. I knew it was like air quotes discovered by Mary Schaefer. Um, Mary Schaefer, for all you don't know, is uh, from Philadelphia and she came to the Rockies every summer and explored the mountains. Oh, goodbye, Renee. Um, <laughs> and, uh, oh, she's gone. Okay. That's all good. <laughs> okay. I'll keep going. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. She's, she's still here. She probably just cut her, her camera because uh, she had to like grab something or maybe like, I was like, know, Oh God, is that, something that, that I shouldn't be on camera. <laughs> sorry. My TV was on in the background and it was really bothering me. Continue. Okay. Right, okay. please continue you're fine no you're fine um what am i going oh yeah mary schaefer is i have all my notes mary schaefer is um like air quotes discovered Moline lake um but she didn't discover Moline lake in two of the books i read she actually got her map from samson beaver who had a map to Moline lake but it wasn't called Moline. it was called chabayume uh, Chabna Imne. Um, I just learned that word from Travis Ryder. So thank you, Travis, for helping me with that. And so, um, yeah, so I, when I was approached to do a project about Mary Schaefer, a film, I said no, because I didn't feel like it was something that needed to be said. Like it wasn't an important story. It's an important story that focused on the truth and reconciliation. And the truth of that story is that she didn't discover the lake. She took it like in the books, it seemed that she took advantage of Samson Beaver. Um, was I there? No. I'm just telling you what I read, which is two books, one written by her and um, a biography written by Jill Foran. And I actually, sorry guys, I'm going to, I, I took so many notes about it. I forgot. <laughs> uh, da, 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 da. Uh, password. Vanna. Uh, hold on. Mary Schaefer. Here we are. Um, and then from a quote, it's like still disappointed at not having Chaba in there. Mary asked Beaver if he was familiar with the mysterious lake. Mary was aware Stonies didn't like to reveal information about their hunting grounds, but she boldly asked Beaver if he would draw her a map to the lake. Beaver requested that he be paid for the information, but Mary would have none of it, reminding him of the many gifts she brought to his family. The sheepish, na the sheepish native then drew a rough diagram from memory. Pleased with herself and already planning her next adventure, Mary picked the treasured piece of paper away for safekeeping. And that's a direct quote from the book. So... I was I comfortable <laughs> so when I got the email to be about this book I I already wanted to say no or about the movie I already wanted to say no but I needed to I need more information than like I think this like I needed like hard facts of like why I'm gonna say no and like why this shouldn't be a movie why this shouldn't be the story isn't important right now um and so I read her book and yeah and then, so, yeah, so after discovery of the lake, the discovery, all air quotes, guys, when I say discover, um, the, at the end of the book, she says, in 1911, Mary was asked by the geological surveyors of Canada to survey a map to the lake. Not only would she be capable and a reliable worker, her own increasing fame would certainly help promote the beauty of the newly formed Jasper National Park, where Moline Lake situated. So the, geolo the geological surveyors of Canada were responsible for the colonization of Canada. And to celebrate someone who helped, um, who helped tourism come to a really beautiful, important, sacred place is not something that I was comfortable with doing. Yeah, that is, that's the history that you don't, learn about and I think that is really clear because they're trying to make a movie about 
about Mary, but there's this whole under story to it there where like you say, like she didn't discover this. She <laughs> took this map from someone who asked to be paid for their work, for their time, for knowing where this place is in the first place. And she's getting all the glory, but poor Samson Beaver <laughs> got whatever she considered a gift. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely, like, I, I don't want to, like, and I know it's so hard talking about this because Mary Schaefer is a explorer who's a woman who did all these things that not a lot of women did back then and, like, mm -hmm. and is an artist and is a beautiful photographer. But it's so hard to, like, tell and you can't tell her story without telling that story and the beaver family is still around um so if this if they wanted to make a move or like wanted to tie a story about mary schaefer and the truth and reconciliation i would not contact me i would contact the beaver family um because <laughs> i don't have i like i've been to jasper maybe four times i don't i don't know the area well um i do have a special place for the rockies but it's not it's not like, it's not like Banff for me. It's not like home. It's not like I, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not my nation either. Like I, my, my nation is from the Red River settlement in Manitoba, Saskatchewan. My, I have so much family in Saskatchewan from my Métis side and it's, it's not Banff either. It's just Banff is my home This is where, and I love it. And, and as an indigenous person, like I'm trying to make, I'm, I'm just like, making all my artwork about like things I care about, which is indigenous mountain names, um, the, the people of this land and like animals. Like I'm really trying to give a voice to the animals who reside here every day and more than like what we do and more than we do. And I'm just, I don't know, like my work isn't even traditional work of Métis beating or Métis art. It's um, photography and it's of Banff. Yeah, I love the indigenous names of mountains because I know I tried to find like my favorite mountain in the Rockies is Mount Temple. And I tried yeah. to find an indigenous name and I was like, man, like does one exist? I I mean it probably does somewhere, but it's impossible to find some of these names. Some you can Google and then the rest it's it's really hard to find any indigenous names for these mountains and you know that they have them. Oh, fully. They're like every, I feel like most mountain, or even if they don't have a name, like that's like the whole premise of it is just like, who's to name a mountain? Why would you name a mountain? I don't, I don't, I don't understand people sometimes. I don't understand white people. I don't understand this concept of going to a place that is not yours and saying that you discovered it, reshaping history, taking it away from people that existed before you arrived and thinking that you are better, that there is a right way of doing things just purely because you exist in a different sphere. I don't understand that. And talking about this stuff and hearing it, it makes me like, it makes me upset. And I wish that I wish I could just bitch slap colonialism and just bitch yeah. slap. <laughs> Sorry, that's so mean, but I, I, just, I don't know if I, I have a lot of anger inside of me right now. Is it a full moon? But I just like, I don't. And it makes me uncomfortable in a way as well, because I enjoyed the mountains for so long without being educated on any of these things. So like, did I indirectly, did, was I indirectly adding to this by like well, I mean, I was, I'm always I mean, going to find joy by being on a summit but is it like the act of summiting or I don't know for me I, I, I like to be up top on a mountain <laughs> and just think to myself like wow there are so many people that will never have the joy of being up here and that is really sad that they won't experience this but I'm here now so I, just like taking in the whole experience of like what you see and what you feel and just like the power in your own body to get yourself there. But I know there's other parts of it that I 
totally like bought into before and that makes me uncomfortable that I fed into those ideals without meaning to ever really I just but didn't I didn't too I mean if you don't cringe at something you did in the past you're not growing um Preach. which is which is the a whole like I don't know which can tie into cancel culture because like like I don't know like I I'm as a local in Banff like I've definitely done that fucking gatekeeping thing where I'm like you're not a local you've only been here for 10 years like you know like something really awful and stupid like that like I used to do that um and I learned and I don't want to be that person anymore and yeah and it's just yeah just growing and I'm making art about it and and we've all we've all done that we've all done that with the mountains I mean we've all like summited a mountain we're like yes like I did heart mountain yesterday or like two days ago and I was like yeah like I did it I was so proud but then there was so many times where I'm like I wanted to quit when I was like going up and I'm like why don't I I don't get it (laughs) you know but um but yeah no it's a colonizer mentality to be like I need to conquer this um which you guys have previously talked about on your um podcast as well but if we all get rid of that mentality we're all having a good day (laughs) do you know what I mean like it's like you don't need to you don't need to like have this objective you don't need to like get (laughs) you don't need to like get to the top of like vermilion peak on skis to make it a good day you just you you just gotta get home at the end of the day with your friends and uh your beer I think your beer (laughs) like beer the, the weekend I just had, which I touched on before we started, like first two days of mountain biking. And I had like a really bad six month year period where I was burnt out. Didn't do a lot of skiing this year, which everybody's probably aware of because I was definitely not my typical content ho self. Um, but I like I was so focused on like keeping up with everybody else because we did like 31 kilometers of biking and like 1500 meters of climbing and that was just me they did like double what I did because I had to tap out halfway through the day but there was one point where I was at the top and I was looking around and I was like I forgot where I was for a minute I was so focused on just like surviving and like being stubborn and just like getting to the top that like you don't realize where you are like that becomes all that you are focused on and it really takes away from like what is meant to happen when you're in the outdoors like that that level of connection and i don't know it's yeah that's such a great point we really need to work on not conquering shit i didn't do nearly as much climbing as you did but i can tell you i quite nearly fell off of the climb trail because i was too busy looking at the view (laughs) you would have one than I did I was like looking at the gravel just like and then I'd like look up at everything since I was just like looking at the gravel like small details just in the red zone I'd look up and the clouds were just like pulsating and I was like this is overwhelming back to the gravel (laughs) 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 I know every time I'm in like O'Hara doing like all souls or the uh whatever yuckness ledges I'm like oh god like I can't even enjoy it like (laughs) I'm I'm on the ground. I am puckered. I my whole body is puckered. Jesus, what is happening? Um, I think like everything that you just touched on and like the colonial concept of like conquering something, this would be such a cool segue into the concept of mountain culture. Mm. Mm. My favorite word. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I guess um um so mountain culture is this new term that i've only discovered in the past five years um i don't know what it means do you get like mountain culture let's let's play a game what do you guys think mountain culture means what does the term mean to you i can unpack this from a marketing perspective go for it okay um so renee's like oh tori's doing another marketing monologue <laughs> talked about me doing this See her eyes like- too. <laughs> I know, right? She's like, fuck, it's who I am as a person. It's fine. It's how I understand the world. Um, But marketing people, professionals, academics will often look at culture in terms of like, like Bordeaux, uh, Pierre Bordeaux. He's a French sociologist who coined the terms cultural capital and habitus. So habitus is like a person's ability, like natural sense to belong. Um, So it's like, 
you know, you recognize that you're part of a group or you find group identity in accruing different pieces of cultural capital. And cultural capital can be the clothing that you wear, the activities that you do, the language you use, um, the music that you listen to, like any of those facets of culture. So like value systems, beliefs, uh, those kinds of aspects. So when you see mountain culture, it's grouping habitus and cultural capital into a bubble that you would typically see within I'm, I'm going to say like uh, outdoor consumerism. So that's what capital, cultural capital is, is it like expands into consumerism and it shapes the way that people purchase things, um, how they choose to purchase things based on their identity facets. And a lot of people don't like to be told that, you know, they're, the way they express their identity can often be seen as connected to like an accumulation of different brands that they pick. So it's like somebody that is wearing Arc'teryx, you can make assumptions about like their income levels or what they're interested in. And now that's branching over into like city life. So you can see like how culture is shaped on those facets. And like, that's how we see culture in marketing, if that makes sense. Okay. I rolled my eyes, but that was actually a good summary. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like Nahadi and I are both sitting here just like, fuck mountain culture. Like the longer I spend... And I, don't, I think it's because I'm less in tune with it, maybe just since I stopped competing and had some bad experiences throughout myself and just finding skiing and mountain biking just as activities to do for my own enjoyment these days. I've just gotten so crotchety and so jaded about so many things in the outdoor industry that I just like, yeah, like I hear mountain culture and I'm like, Ugh. I just hate that I was so into it and now I'm trying to just constantly redefine that for myself so that I don't feel like just another mountain culture asshole. <laughs> I think we're all mountain culture assholes in some way. <laughs> I, mean, mountain culture assholes. I, I mean, absolutely, because we are so privileged to do what we do and even like, just like mountain biking the other day, like someone in the group was just like, wow, like, the fact that we are all sitting here at the top of this top of this trail about to have a really good time and we all have nice bikes and a truck that drove us up here like beautiful views it's not really raining like this is pretty special and just like having groups where you can take a minute and appreciate that and practically fall off the climb trail because you're in a spot that is so lovely in a beautiful forest. And I have really enjoyed mountain biking for that lately because there's no competitive aspect to it at all for me. And I just love the forest so much out here. It is beautiful. So is that what mountain culture is to you? Just like, I think it's, yeah, I think it's what it's becoming redefined for me is just yeah. having time outdoors, decompress, be with my friends, just enjoy where I am, enjoy who I'm with. And it's definitely more of that than I used to have so many just goals that were, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but they just don't mean anything and they don't contribute anything to the greater good of the world. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of mountain culture honestly is, is people just constantly pushing and making up these objectives and acting like it's important when actually it contributes like a whole lot of fucking nothing to the greater good of everything. <laughs> That's really interesting that you say that because in school I learned about Ansel Adams um, and not for the good part of it. Um, the fact that his a lot of his photography was during the World War and he just took photos of um, Yosemite while people were risking their lives at war. Um, so we learned about that in school. We learned about that of like, what, what, not like what mountain culture, but like landscape photography, what does that do for the greater good compared to like conceptual art and like art criticism? Um, so it's really interesting that you say that because I do have this, like, I definitely have this, like, what am I doing? Like, how am I contributing to society in some way through my artwork? But after my trip to Venice, I was just like, no, no, no. Like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, people care. Um, but yeah, but going back to mountain culture, I definitely think that mountain culture is, for me, 
first hearing the word, first thing that comes to mind, mountain culture is white privilege. Um, because I don't see, I don't see um, a lot of people of color as like the theme of your podcast is. It's just like, we don't see people of color in the mountains. So for me, mountain culture is white privilege. And then when I asked on Instagram, what is mountain culture to you? I got the funniest ones. I'll highlight some. Um, and then what do you said, Tori? Like someone said something almost elitist where you need to own Arcterics or Patagonia and shred to be in air quotes, um, which was a 50, 50 yes and no. And then we also like had some funny ones, which is like having several different grades of toques, depending on how windy it is. I'm like, okay, that one's like a little bit funny. Like that's a little bit of a, okay, that's like nice here. And then, yeah, it's just, um, we got, and then we got someone being like appreciation of the land. And like, in many ways that might be what mountain culture is to some people as well. But like the fact that like this term came out of nowhere and I don't know who made it, where it's from. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. But then like I put, I, I'm going to call myself on this. Like I it's, I know it's like an anonymous poll, but I said this, I said a made up term by rich white people and 60% said yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes. Yeah, and I just don't know what it is. And then at the end, I was just like, do we now know what mount culture is? 85% no. Yeah. Like, if you can't get, you can't give it a term. You can't just define it. There's, I don't even know what it is. It has to be made up. It has to be a new word. Um, but during the movie that I filmed with Zoya and Colleen and Nat, they asked each and every one of us, what is mountain culture? We all had extremely different answers. Um, I, I said white privilege. Um, Cause that's what it is to me. But then like someone who is from um, the Shushwap nation said, it means being outdoors, me being free. It means being so like, yeah, like mountain culture means something indigenous to all or something, sorry, something different to all of us, even in the indigenous community, like people. And then like, when I asked the Tanaka, my uh, friend who's a Tanaka elder was mountain culture mean to you? She's like, I don't know. It's not my culture. Which I think also just speaks volumes to kind of what we said of it being just a very colonial term or way to define culture, air quotes, when there were people living that culture in this place before anyone else even showed up. And that's not reflected at all in what people currently consider to be mountain culture. Yeah. I just want to circle back on like, the concept of culture as well. Um, because if you look at like popular culture and popular culture is like uh, media representation, product design, like um, narratives that are told, movies, images, like everything. And people don't realize that all the different communications within popular culture create associations in your brain. And popular culture is created through like uh, people who are in power because they project those those messages and they shape it. And that's how you see like, you know, popular culture, like micro popular cultures in specific spheres and industries. So to say that mountain culture is white privilege is 100% accurate because if you look at any of the messaging, any of like the lack of diversity, inclusiveness, like the overall like kind of hub of what it means to be in the mountains as an individual with different facets of their identity, it is it is white privilege. 120%, right? Yeah. Um, which I think makes people uncomfortable. So to coin it as mountain culture, it's like that marketing thing. It's like grouping it. But where did it start? And how did it get there? Yeah, no think, idea. Yeah, it's popular culture is such an odd phenomenon. And it creates like inherent biases and subconscious like dissonance when you see somebody in the outdoors. People will be like, well, no, this isn't a problem. Like, what are you talking about? And in uh, like, you know, rhetorically, when you're unpacking a piece of popular culture, you need to ask yourself three things is like, who was this made by? So looking at who created the content, who was it inherently made for? So who is the target audience? And then who is consuming it broadly? So as a total, and what is the overall message that is constructed? So if you have like a white privilege company, who's sharing a message of like colonialism, lack of diversity, the exclusivity of being an expert, heteronormativity, that it's masculine dominated, um, all those kind of aspects, 
it's meant for like a specific target audience. Uh, so you could say that that fits the narrative of who's predominantly consuming and exploring in the outdoors um, and who is consuming mountain culture, but then who sees it is a broader population and it constructs a narrative that others don't belong. And yeah. it's like, when I called out Tanner Hall about that whole, that blew up on the internet. Um, but that's how I unpack the image because it helps to point out how simple things like that, like an image can communicate those things without, you know, without the awareness that they're constructing and upholding those narratives, which is totally what's happened in outdoor culture. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that was funny. But... <laughs> <laughs> huh. I don't know. I, I love some uh, online goss once in a while. So once I in like a while, ne- oh, we once, all, in a while. Only once in a while, not a lot. I, I mean, wish we segue you... to something else. On it. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you think? I mean, if, if this isn't like, I totally want to respect like the amount of energy that you're, you're putting into this podcast to help like educate people. Cause I think a lot of who listen to us because of mountain culture, quotation, mm-hmm. air quotation marks are part of that, like colonial, colonialized, like white privileged demographic. Um, do you have any tips on how people can start to decolonize the outdoors and maybe deconstruct their associations to mountain culture? Mm, it's kind of hard to like give advice on something that broad and big um I would just say just know where you are um just as a starter I think um I can't give anyone all the advice but I can speak to myself what I like to do whenever I hike or ski a mountain I like to figure out they the I just like to think of um I just like to research a little bit about it like you don't have you don't have to take this advice at all but I like to be like, who's this named after? What land is it on? Um, who's the, yeah. Anyway, just, I think to summarize it into a very small summary, <laughs> um, uh, be aware of where you are and um, appreciate the land you're on. And not just in an objective conquering perspective. Don't just try to map it out on fat maps. Um, like look at all those concepts, like reaching your objective, like planning your route. It's like, that's actually a great tip. It's like looking to it more than that. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be anything more than that either. If you, but if, if like, I don't know, (laughs) um, take a class, get educated. There's just so much like, yeah, there's actually the right person to give advice about this, but this is just what I do. No, I think that's like a really great place to start. And I think if people start there, it'll probably create a domino effect of diving deeper into understanding how we've colonized the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of universities offer free courses, just so everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. They do on Indigenous studies and yeah. So 